Today I'm uh, picking back up on the series on the Holy Spirit. In the spring, as you recall, I preached probably about half a dozen sermons on the Spirit, and the in, particularly the Spirit and the individual, like the Spirit and the Word, the Spirit and prayer, the Spirit and guidance. But on this part of the series on the Holy Spirit, I want to talk about not only the Spirit and individual, but how the Spirit moves with churches. So I'm reading from Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 20. Paul writes this, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The New Testament church ran on the power of the Holy Spirit. And Paul tells us in Ephesians, look, there's a lot of bad stuff out there. It's easy to lose your way. Easy to become foolish like the world is foolish. Easy to be seduced. To get drunk on the wine flowing all around you. Here's the antidote, Paul says. Do not get drunk on the world's wine, but be filled with the Spirit. And keep being filled with the Spirit, because this is in the present tense, which means keep being filled with the Spirit over and over and over again. Walk in the Spirit. Absorb His joy. Sing His songs. And did you notice that it says the Spirit will give you songs to sing. And make music in your heart to the Lord. Let the Spirit lead you to praise to the Father in everything, everything. Don't just resist evil, he says, but be filled with the life of God through his Spirit. Contemporary Christian, Western Christianity offers innovations in style. It offers clever marketing, consumer-oriented programming. But many people are asking, Where is the power of the Holy Spirit operating in our churches these days? Where are people getting saved? Where is transformation taking place? Where is the Spirit leading? Where is not just the new wineskins that we're developing, but where's the new wine that repeatedly bursts those wineskins that Jesus talked about? For too many people, especially young people, the church is lifeless, it's boring, it's dead, it's irrelevant. Where is the Holy Spirit in the church? Oddly enough, I think one of the reasons we don't see the Spirit operating in most evangelical churches and Anabaptist churches is the way we lead people to Christ. Ironically, what stops Christians from walking in the Spirit is the way they become Christians in the first place. Salvation is presented as just focusing on forgiveness and justification by faith alone. Now, forgiveness and justification by faith alone are critical doctrines of the Bible. I have preached many times on grace and forgiveness and justification by faith alone. But forgiveness and justification by faith alone are just part of the gospel. They are not the whole thing. Conversion is just the start of the journey. Often the way salvation is presented is like if you say the right stuff and believe it, you've punched your ticket to heaven. Hallelujah. Now all you need to do after that is to drop into church every now and then, pray some to make sure the ticket is still good, 
and then turn it in when you die. What happens between conversion and death is quite secondary. There is no understanding or expectation of change in how we live and how we work. There is no expectation about growth or spiritual intimacy with God or the power of God flowing through our lives after conversion. And since these things aren't expected, why do you need the power and the presence of the Spirit? Why do you need the Holy Spirit if all salvation involves is you punching your ticket to God and waiting till you die? Why do you need the Holy Spirit if a life of experience and growth and intimacy with God are seen as optional or just for a sacred few? That is simply an inadequate definition of salvation. God has more for us than just forgiving us and reserving a place in heaven for us. It's like a wedding in relation to marriage. The wedding's important. The starting of a covenant between two people is a beautiful and necessary thing to start a marriage. But the wedding day is not all that a marriage is about. What if on their wedding day the husband said to his new wife, Okay, we just got married in the church today. The important stuff is over. We're married. I'll drop in to see how you're doing from time to time, honey. And say nice things at your funeral. We'll see you later, sweetie pie. The wedding day is important to a marriage. But the wedding day is not the whole marriage. Living together, sharing our lives together, communicating, growing in intimacy with family, building a life together is the marriage. The wedding day is just when the adventure begins. But it's the start. It's not the destination. The same with conversion and forgiveness. It's the start. It's not the end. God means for us to be filled with His Spirit and His love and His gifts and His power to start a lifetime of transformation and fruit. Salvation is far more than a ticket to heaven. And we inadvertently stop the work of the Holy Spirit when we tell people all that matters is forgiveness. God has so much more for us than that. And I'll tell you a second reason that the Western contemporary church is not operating in the fullness of the Spirit. We are the victims of Western philosophy. When Rene Descartes said, I think, therefore I am, a seismic shift took place in Western civilization. Human reason and thought and logic became the arbitrators of what is real and not real, true or false. Hegel and Kant and other philosophers followed as a result. The result was devastating to the church. Spirituality began to be approached almost entirely intellectually. The goal was to think or reason our way to God. Emotions were devalued. We now knew God by means of our intellect, properly applying, understanding the principles of Scripture. Propositional truth and correct doctrine became almost all that, was what, that mattered. Experience became suspect. Encounters with the living God through His Spirit were for fanatics. Remember, that was the main criticism of the Wesleyans. They said, they're too enthusiastic, they're too emotional during the Wesleyan revival. Encounters with the living God through His Spirit became simply academic. Intellect and reason were considered objective. Experience or emotions were subjective and not to be trusted at all. 
And when that happened, the Holy Spirit was taken out and sat on the bench. Because the Holy Spirit is all about subjective emotional stuff. That's what, when it, the fruit of the Spirit is, what are the first three sp- fruits? Love, peace, joy. All those suspect things that are not pure intellect. And of course, this division is not biblical. Jesus said, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and strength and mind. There is not to be a false division between mind and heart, intellect and experience. All we are, all we are, is to be used in the spiritual journey. As C.S. Lewis put it, we are called to have cool heads and warm hearts. One is not in opposition to the other. The Bible tells us the truth. But the heart of that truth is that God wants to be with us. He wants us to feel His love. He wants what we put in our intellects to lead us into a living encounter with Him and into the fullness of the Spirit. Years ago, I used this illustration. This is a Mountain Dew. It is a glorious thing. How can you know a Mountain Dew? Well, the Descartian, Hegelian, Kantian way of knowing what this Mountain Dew is is by looking at the label and reading it. In the Western way of looking at reality, here is a Mountain Dew. It is carbonated water, high fructose corn syrup, concentrated orange juice, citric acid, natural flavoring, benzoate, sodium citrate, something I can't even pronounce, <laughs> brominated vegetable oil, and my favorite, yellow number five. The biblical way of knowing a Mountain Dew is this. Hallelujah. (laughs) Hallelujah. Are both ways of knowing important? Of course. I need to know what's in a Mountain Dew. I don't want to be drinking rat poison. Although I'm sure if a rat drank it, it probably would die. (laughs) But I didn't buy this Mountain Dew just to read the label. I didn't purchase this Mountain Dew just to gaze at the lovely green bottle, yellow dye number five. I bought this Mountain Dew to taste its sugary goodness, to feel the caffeine infusing its power in me. I drank two of these every Sunday morning. I call it liquid anointing every Sunday morning. The primary anointer is the Holy Spirit, but these babies help. To paraphrase King David, taste and see that the dew is good. As the Dalton panteth for the dew, so my soul longeth after thee. Truth is vital. But so is what truth points to. Life in the spirit. Mountain dew is no good left in the bottle. Plus another side benefit of mountain dew is it gives your teeth that healthy yellow glow. Please don't miss the main point. God tells us, calls us not only to read, He calls us to drink. 
Chuck, somebody wrote Chuck Swindoll a letter. And I think it illustrates what I'm trying to say. I think it illustrates the dilemma for many of us. I think it illustrates the dilemma of many evangelical and Anabaptist churches. Let me read this letter to you and see if you relate to it. Dear Chuck, there's a yearning in the evangelical world for a greater sense of intimacy with God. I believe we have had too much head and not enough heart. People are intrigued now by the Holy Spirit. Like the proverbial moth and flame, they don't know how, to, how close they can fly without burning their wings. They're attracted to the flame for some inexplicable reason. Still, they are frightened of the Holy Spirit. There is a fear among us evangelicals that we have missed out on something spiritually. The abundant life we sought is not altogether fulfilling like we were promised. There is a craving for spiritual intimacy with God that is seldom, if ever, satisfied. Could it be that what is really missing, the thing that would give us an appetite for daily prayer and Bible study and personal dynamic, is the empowering of a more profound measure of the Holy Spirit? Don't we need to let the Holy Spirit out of the closet? Evangelicals may have believed the spiritual world is flat, that if they sell too close to the edge of the Christian experience, they'll fall off the edge into emotional oblivion. Who knows, they might even get enthusiastic. And so we've run away from all but the most intellectualized expressions of the Spirit as though He were some kind of sea monster. Evangelicals are reasoned believers, almost too logical. Yet we've always suspected that too much emotion has been let out of our Christian experience. Many of us yearn for spiritual passion, which has become only a flicker in many of our hearts. Somebody with evangelical credibility needs to tell us that it's okay to get close to the flame. Maybe God still works miracles, at least in some measure. If not, then why do we pray for God's help when we are sick or diseased? Are our prayers for God's intervention merely psychological games we play on ourselves, knowing that God no longer acts decisively, much less miraculously in our world today? Evangelicals are secretly concerned that we have become functional deists. You know what a deist is? God made the world and then went far, far away. Evangelicals are secretly concerned that we have become deists who think God's last acts were a few miracles after resurrection. Since about A.D. 70, God has gone off into the back room, leaving blind and spiritual physical laws in control. Isn't there an option between deism and Oral Roberts? Can we free God to work proactively in His world? Let's face it, Chuck. The charismatics scare us. We are secretly relieved when fringe nuts have their sordid laundry aired out in the press. The truth is, is that mainstream charismatics are also embarrassed by such extremists. Let's don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. How would a new, unintimidated theology of the Holy Spirit change our experiences in worship, in prayer, in witness, in spiritual confidence? Some of us need a revolution, Chuck. Isn't it about time evangelicals revisited the doctrine of the Holy Spirit? without concern that it will sound too charismatic? Shouldn't we leave God more room to work directly in our lives today? 
For many Christians, E.T. has had a deeper, more positive personal impact than some of, for some of these people than the Holy Spirit. I love that term. Can we have an unintimidated theology of the Holy Spirit? Theology matters. The Word is essential. But the Spirit and the Word work together. It's not either or. The Word teaches us, but the Word without the Spirit, it becomes lifeless, it becomes empty. It's just like he described in that letter. You have all kinds of Christians reading the Word, but not experiencing the Word. The Bible gives us objective truth, but the Spirit must make that objective truth into subjective truth and make it real in our lives and in our hearts. We must not be afraid of spiritual experience. Or spiritually fueled emotion like love and peace and joy. This is part of our heritage. This is what is promised to us. We must not be afraid of God's fire. Amen? The final reason I want to point out why, the, why Western contemporary church is often afraid of the Holy Spirit and letting Him operate in our lives is to be quite honest, and I need to talk about the elephant in the room, is because some of the weird and out-and-out stupid things that have been done in the name of the Holy Spirit. Take, for example, some of the things that happened in Toronto in the mid-1990s. It was called the Toronto Revival or the Toronto Blessing. Now, I have no doubt that what happened up there was some genuine work of the Holy Spirit. People were saved by the hundreds. There were hundreds of documented miracles. There was heartfelt worship. The The Spirit was there working. But also there was hysterical laughing that often went on for hours. There was barking like dogs and roaring like wild animals. And in one part of the movement, some participants even purposely relieved themselves in their pants as a sign of complete abandonment to God. Now, mature leadership and a working knowledge of Scripture would have stopped a lot of this. Because I want to tell you something. If Paul in 1 Corinthians, said to the Corinthians, listen, I don't want more than three of you speaking in in tongues in a public service at once, and there had better be an interpretation. If not, you need to stop it. And why did he say that? He said it because, because if an unbelieving person, an unbelieving stranger walks into the midst and hears all this, they will consider you mad. If tongues and interpretation had to be controlled, what would... Paul do with this hot mess of baying at the moon? One test I use to see if someone is truly in the Spirit is what I call the face-to-face test. If Jesus was standing right in front of you in bodily form and you could see him face-to-face, what would you say and what would you do? Would you go, oh Jesus, and then start making animal sounds? Would you go, oh, Jesus, meow? Would you? Or if you're really excited, meow, 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 meow. Would you do that? How would that express any meaningful way to love Jesus? If you wouldn't do it face-to-face with Jesus, then don't do it in the Spirit because Jesus and the Spirit are one. If you came into a face-in-face encounter with Jesus... Would you say, Jesus, I love you so much, and then start barking like a dog? 
What's Jesus supposed to do with that? Rub your head and say, that's a good boy. That's a good boy. In Revelation, it says, one day we will all stand before the throne and sing and worship and proclaim, worthy is the Lamb. It does not say that when all of that is over, we will howl like coyotes after that. And as far as soiling one's pants as a sign of surrender, my Lord, I see nowhere in Old Testament where the priests made a pea offering to the Yahweh. Can you imagine such a thing? I saw nowhere in the New Testament where it says, you know, be filled with the Spirit and soil your pants. Can you imagine if you were dating, your, when you were dating your spouse, if at one point in courtship you said, I love you so much, I'm going to relieve myself right now in the car? I don't think you'd be married today. If, Kim, if I'd have done that and Kim went home to her father and he said, why did the date end early? He would say, she would have said, you wouldn't believe it. Oh, the things that get blamed on the Holy Spirit. Let me tell you a little secret. Whenever the Spirit moves, so does the other side. And immature Christians often really don't know the difference between flesh and spirit. They don't know the difference between the Spirit's touch and their own excitement. And the net result, when the devil gets in there and when flesh gets in there and these things kind of go a little bit crazy, the net result is that the cause of Christ is hurt because millions and millions of people, including Christians, go, if that's what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, I want nothing to do with it. And who could blame them? This reinforces the Descartian, Kantian, Hegelian bias that says, see what happens when you leave pure reason? See what happens when you start feeling and experiencing stuff? You end up barking like a dog and worse. I understand. But brothers and sisters, we cannot throw out the baby with the bathwater. People being weird in the name of the Holy Spirit cannot cause us to functionally reject the Holy Spirit's moving in our midst and in our lives. We cannot run from the Holy Spirit no matter what the reason. Because if we run from the Holy Spirit, we are running from God. Because to keep Him at arm's length is to stop God operating in us and in our midst. And when you stop God doing that, that's when churches die. That's when things get dead and boring. That's when people start going through the motions. Christianity does not stop at the cross where Jesus died. Christianity goes beyond the pages of Scripture right into human life. If we don't let the Holy Spirit fill us and lead us, we are dead in the water as Christians and as a church. Jesus never meant for us to do things for him, but with him through the power of his spirit. Now, why did I say all of this this morning? Why today's topic? Because I realized there are obstacles in people's hearts and minds to the Holy Spirit. Because I, before I could talk about why we should be filled with the spirit, I needed to talk about why many of us don't want to be filled with the spirit. And by the way, when I talk about being filled with the Holy Spirit, I am not talking about any particular manifestation. 
I am not talking about tongues as a prerequisite for being filled with the Spirit, nor any particular gift. I'm not saying you have to be any particular way at all. I'm not trying to make us charismatic or Pentecostal. I am not trying to hook us to any movement. I don't care if you stand up, sit down, or kneel. I don't care if you laugh or cry. I don't care if you're silent or if you shout. That's not the point. The point is, will we let the Holy Spirit move among us and see what happens? That's the point. A month ago, on a Sunday morning service, I, I believe God spoke to me. Hank was preaching, but another still small voice was speaking to me. The Spirit, I believe, told me three things. And I started writing furiously on my church bulletin. The first word was this. Would he quit trying so hard to do things for me? Before you do things in ministry, stop and receive what I have for you at that moment. Take before you give. Breathe in before you breathe out. The second word was, HBIC is called to create leadership for my kingdom. In the past, you've always felt tinges of sadness when good people left HBIC to serve me elsewhere. And we have. We have sent out so many people. In my 35 years, we've sent out 19 pastors or, or chaplains. We've sent out dozens and dozens of missionaries. we sent out all kinds of informal people who go into inner-city hospitals, and there they are a nurse or a doctor in an inner city for the name of Jesus Christ. And often my attitude has been, Oh, Lord, you're taking the best and the brightest and leaving me with it. Never mind. I, <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm really kidding on that. But what the Lord told me is, rejoice. You are having a global impact. And if you rejoice, I will send far more in than you send out. Embrace this ministry. Rejoice. And the third word was this simple. I felt the Spirit saying to me, I want to take you into this and this church to another level spiritually. I want to do things not done before. And that was it. I don't know what that looks like. I don't have any timetables whatsoever. I'm not in control of this. The Spirit is. But I do believe we have received an invitation from the Spirit to go deeper and further than probably many of us are used to and many of us are comfortable with. The wind is going to blow. Will we in prayer hold up our sails? Will we be filled with the Spirit in the days to come? That, I think that is the, one of the main questions facing this church. Are we open to receive what the Spirit has for us? Are we willing to receive the Spirit's guidance and filling? Are we willing to be made willing? What blocks you from wanting that? Is it some truncated version of salvation? You never saw the need for it? Is it an intellectualism that, that blocks off whole parts of your personality? Is it the fear of weirdness? Or is it just the fear of God's spirit, period, not knowing what he will do? Or maybe 
It's just good old-fashioned sin. Maybe you love something more than you love God, and you don't want the Spirit getting at it. But if you're not hungry for the Spirit, can you at least pray for hunger? If you're not thirsty for the Spirit, can you at least pray for thirst? If your soul is dry and arid, can you pray for Christ's living water to fill you? It is time to pray, brothers and sisters. That's the only way I know to get in the flow of the Spirit. It is time to pray for the Spirit to fill us. For any healthy church, that is not a suggestion according to Paul. Because when he says be filled with the Spirit, that's in the imperative. That is a command. He is saying you must be filled with the Spirit. This is not for an elite few. It is for all of us. It is for this church. And so what I want us to do is to start that prayer process today. And I want us to take some time in silence. And I want you to bow your heads and I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to let the Spirit search your heart about how you feel about the Holy Spirit. What are your fears? What are your cares? What are your resistances? What is it? Is it let the Spirit show you if there's anything in you that would resist His Spirit moving in your life. We're going to give you some times of silence now to do just that. And among us, take us where you want us to go. Remove all obstacles. Starting today, help us see those obstacles.
in the first service, I fairly felt led by the Lord to just end the service and say this, and I'm going to extend it to here. The Lord is moving his people's hearts. This is the end of this service. If you need to go, go in peace. If you need to stay, stay in peace and pray. God bless you. Do what the Spirit leads you to do. The service is over. Set my spirit free, oh.